Now, thank you for being here. With that being said, if you have your Bible, please turn with me to John chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 16 through 26 this morning. Listen, if you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible, on this table back here, you can grab one. In fact, it's our gift to you. If you don't own one, please take it home with you. You can have it, and I suggest reading it. So if you need a moment, I'll give you a second to get there. We're going to go to John chapter 4 and look at verses 16 through 26. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. John chapter 4, starting at verse 16, and it reads, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this opportunity to fellowship together once again. God, I have an incredible task before me to preach from your word. God, I could never speak to the glory that you truly deserve. I am simply a man who is imperfect, a man who has fallen, a man who is weak. But God, you are mighty. So I ask that your spirit would rest upon me this morning, God, that you would be at work in and through me. As I share the truth of your word, God, help me to remain faithful to the text. Help me to preach with passion, courage, yet humility. And God, I pray for those sitting under uh, the sound of my voice this morning, under the teaching of your word, God, that they would be changed. Father, I pray for transformation, for hearts that are cold to Jesus Christ would come alive to the glory of the Savior this morning. Father, I pray that you would teach us what it is you want us to take away from these verses today, that you would speak through me, your servant, for your glory, and that you would be honored and glorified through it all. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So over the last several years, I've had the opportunity to coach basketball with Hill City Crash. Some of you may be familiar with our Crash program. It's a nonprofit organization. Uh, We use the game of basketball as a vehicle to share the gospel with young men in the city and to mentor these young men accordingly. Well, as a coach, one of the things that I've found over the years is every program, right, we have a particular standard for our players, the way that they perform on the court and the way that they conduct themselves. 
But one of the things I've found is not all of my players take this seriously. They're not all focused on this standard that we have, especially when it comes to practice, right? Sometimes we're in practice and we're running drills and guys are just throwing lazy passes. They're not getting back on defense. They don't know where they're supposed to be on the offensive end. I mean, it's just a mess. And the reason this becomes such a problem is because inconsistency in practice becomes inconsistency in the game. See, if you don't practice well, you're not going to play well. So one of the things I try to stress to my guys is this, man, the way that you do things matters. And that's a truth that goes well beyond the game of basketball. Listen, if you're in here and you're a student, right, the way that you cite your sources when you do your research papers, that matters. Listen, if you're an employee, the way that you perform your duties, it matters to your employer and to the company that you work for. Listen, if you're a father in here, the way that you parent your kids absolutely matters. It's going to have a lasting effect on them. Listen, there are a lot of examples I could point to, but nothing is more significant than when it comes to the worship of God. That absolutely matters because God also has a particular standard as well. The way that we worship him matters more than all of these other things. And as we look at the text before us this morning, we find Jesus pointing to this reality when he's engaging in this conversation with this Samaritan woman. See, the Lord introduces her to a truth that would have been revolutionary to her at the time, considering all that she knew about appropriate worship of Yahweh. You see, this woman was so concerned about where to worship God. But Jesus, as he so often does, he raises the stakes here. He makes a statement that we must give attention to. He says, true worshipers worship in spirit and truth. See, this will be the thrust of these verses. This is the essential piece of this conversation. See, what Jesus puts forth here is what is required for appropriately worshiping God. Listen, brothers and sisters, I If you don't hear anything else that I say this morning, I want you to get this from me up front. It's not about where you worship God. It's about how you worship God. And how do we most appropriately and faithfully worship God? Through his son, Jesus Christ. So my hope and my prayer is that we would feel the weight of Jesus' words this morning, that we would have a clear and biblical understanding of what it means to offer praise and worship to our great and glorious God. While I feel that that is the main idea here in this passage, there are certainly other truths that we can take away from these verses. So I have three points that I want to walk through briefly this morning. Three points, so if you're taking notes, these will be our three headings. Point number one is this, Jesus knows our sin. We find that in verses 16 through 19. Jesus knows our sin. Point number two, Jesus is how we worship God. We find that in verses 20 through 24. Jesus is how we worship God. And finally, point number three, Jesus is the promised Messiah. Jesus is the promised Messiah. We find that in verses 25 through 26. So let us begin our time. Let's walk through these verses 
together. Point number one, Jesus knows our sin. So if you were here with us last week, then you recall we walked through the first 15 verses of chapter 4. Jesus has come to Samaria, and he's sitting by this well, and he's thirsty from his journey. And the Samaritan woman, she comes there, and she's coming to draw water as she would do daily. And Jesus begins having this conversation with this woman. But much to her surprise, Jesus asks her for a drink. And this, the reason this is so shocking is because of the cultural barriers during the time. If you were here last week, Pastor Tyler walked us through the complicated history between Jews and Samaritans. So for this Jewish man to be publicly engaging with this woman, it was breaking a lot of cultural norms. Jesus was crossing a cultural line, if you will. Now against the backdrop of this well, Jesus offers this woman living water. So unfortunately for this woman, she is like all of us apart from the sovereign work of God. She was spiritually blind. She couldn't see what Jesus was actually offering her. And because of her lack of comprehension, she kind of challenges Jesus. She says, well, how are you going to draw this water? You don't have a bucket and the well is very deep. Then she says, are you greater than our ancestor Jacob? And as we ended in verse 15 last week, we found that this woman was totally unaware, unable to see what Jesus is offering her because she's looking at what he's saying through a human perspective. Therefore, she's blind to what he's offering. She wants water just so she doesn't have to continue coming to that well. But see, Jesus doesn't allow her to remain blind. He won't allow her to stiff arm what he is offering. He won't allow her to continue to walk in darkness. Instead, what Jesus does here is he continues to graciously make an offer to this woman, an invitation. And what does he do? He firmly presses in on her greatest need by drawing attention to her sin. You see, he's already asked her for a drink. In verse 16, he makes another request of this woman. He says, go, call your husband and come here. Now, this may seem like a very odd transition, like this is a sudden and abrupt transition, but it is not without great purpose and intention. See, this is where Jesus begins to expose the heart of the issue, and that is the sin of this woman. Though she may not have realized the true nature of this living water, she's expressed some sort of desire here. Like, I want some water. I I don't want to keep going through what I'm going through. So what does Jesus do? He, He presses in here, and he begins to address her sin. And why is this important? Because this tells us a fundamental truth about those who want to be followers of Christ. And that is, every person who desires to follow Jesus must address their sin. We must lay it at the feet of Jesus Christ. See, Hebrews 12 tells us to lay aside every weight of sin and look to Jesus, who's the author and finisher of our faith. Scriptures clearly tell us of the importance of repentance. The Bible knows no salvation apart from repenting and turning to Jesus Christ. We must turn from our sins and fully embrace the Lord Jesus You can't have fellowship with Christ while simultaneously clinging to your sin, the sin that enslaves. See, Jesus understood the importance of repentance. I'm not just standing here preaching to you what I think about repentance. Jesus understood the necessity of it as well. 
In Matthew chapter 4, as Jesus begins his ministry, he does so by preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Even in the gospel of Luke, Jesus ends his time with the disciples by charging them to preach repentance amongst the nations. And of course, we see this message of repentance preached throughout the entire book of Acts. There's a lot of verses I could give you, but I'm not going to give them to you. I would just suggest sitting down and reading through the book of Acts. You'll see Peter and the apostles continuously challenging those who want to follow Christ Jesus to repent of their sins and turn to him. Listen, we cannot divorce repentance and obedience to Christ from salvation. These two things are linked to one another. So here Jesus is offering this woman an opportunity to confess her sin, to turn and be forgiven. However, like many of us, she initially dodges the truth. She tries to sidestep that conversation. Listen, look at the way she responds to Jesus. She says, I have no husband. Now, while this statement was technically true, it was an attempt for her to hide her sin. I'm sure the last thing she wanted to do was talk about all of her failed marriages and her broken relationships with some Jewish stranger. You know, when I read this encounter, I immediately, I, I want to indict this woman. I want to indict her for saying, you're in the presence of the Savior, Jesus. Just tell him the truth. Tell him about your sin. I want to indict her for concealing her sin. But I can't. Because I realize her desire to cover her sin and hide it from the Lord is no different from my own. None of us like how this feels. It's as old as the garden. It's as old as Adam and Eve taking fig leaves to cover themselves after they had fallen and running and hiding from God, if that were actually a possibility. And it's what we all do with our sin. But this shows us that our sin is not hidden from the Lord. I don't care how hard you work to bury it, to dismiss it, to fix it, to get rid of it. God knows. He sees. You see, Jesus had intimate knowledge of this woman's life, and he has intimate knowledge of your life, my life. What does he see? When he looks into your life, what does he see? Brothers and sisters, this is an opportunity for us to confess, to come out of the dark into the light and rest in the loving mercies of the Savior. Don't continue to hide. Now, that would be the reality for this woman while she initially dodges this truth and tries to sidestep this conversation. We see a great progression that will eventually happen for this woman. But at this moment in the conversation, I believe this woman is starting to squirm just a bit. I'm sure she didn't want to continue having this man investigate her life. She's thinking, man, if I just tell him I don't have a husband, maybe that'll end the conversation. Maybe this dude will take his drink of water and go on about his business. Maybe we can be done. She didn't want Jesus to continue probing her life. But let's look at verses 17. and 18, Jesus pushes the issue. He forces the issue here with his response. See, she said, the woman says, I have no husband. But Jesus said to her, you are right in saying you have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. So Jesus kind of gives her even a bit of a tip of the cap here. He acknowledges her truthfulness. He says, what you've said is true. 
You're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five. So what Jesus is doing here is completely exposing her sin. See, this woman doesn't have the ability to hide anymore. Jesus has fully unmasked her here by exercising his divine knowledge. You see, as Pastor Tyler reminded us last week, this is the reason that this woman came to the well alone, because her reputation preceded her. Everyone in her town knew of all her marriages and all her failed relationships. She was running from her sinful past. See, she had given herself to all these men. She'd sinned and fallen over and over again, and everybody knew it. Listen, I think there's an important reality for us to understand about these verses right here. I think a lot of times we look at this story, this particular passage, and we use it as an example for radical evangelism, right? We'll say, man, Jesus crossed these cultural lines, and he went out of his way, and he was so intentional in coming to this woman, right? We'll say Jesus did all of these wonderful things to radically pursue this woman to evangelize, and we'll say, man, we just need to be more like him. We need to go seeking and saving the lost. And that's absolutely true. We do need to do all of those things. But I think it's important for us to understand something here. I'm not Jesus, and neither are you. Listen, if you want to impose yourself in the story, then you at least do it the right way. You're the woman at the well. I'm the woman at the well. I'm the one who's given my heart to all of these other things time and time again. For her, it was men in relationships. For you, what is it? I know what it is for me. I know the ways that I've sinned and struggled. I know the ways that I've turned my back on God. And what ways have you done that? Is it money? Is it lust? Is it pride? Is it power? Is it success in your career? While, yes, we can learn a lot from Jesus here, what we need to realize is that we're the sinful woman that Jesus has come to pursue. Amen, somebody. I mean, praise God for that reality, right? That he came to us. You see, all this woman had searched for in these men could be only realized in Christ. See, Jesus is beginning to woo this woman to himself, shining a light on her greatest need, and that's her sin. The reality is for folks in this room this morning, if you haven't turned to Jesus, he's calling you as well. This is a moment for you to surrender your sin. Don't run from that. Don't run from that. Listen, I love the directness yet gentleness of Jesus here. He bluntly calls out her sin while simultaneously drawing her heart to him. See, needless to say, this woman is feeling the tension of this conversation with Jesus. She's shaken by his knowledge of her life, and she responds in verse 19 saying, I perceive that you are a prophet. See, Jesus' disclosure of the intimate facts of her life tell her that he's at least inspired that this man must be somebody, as Nicodemus said, who was sent by God or who has God with him. Otherwise, he wouldn't know all of these things about my life. So she acknowledges and she says, Jesus, this man must be a prophet. But she hasn't acknowledged him as Lord and Savior, only as a man who is divinely inspired 
to a certain degree. See, beginning in verse 20, this conversation begins to take a turn. There's a shift in the topic of discussion, which leads me to point number two. Jesus is how we worship God. Let's look at verses 20 through 24. After the woman says, sir, I perceive you are a prophet, she says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So again, here we have what appears to be a sudden change of subject. We've departed from the conversation about this woman's sin and her lifestyle and all of her marriages. Now we're beginning a discussion on worship. But why the departure here? I mean, why does she suddenly start talking about this? Doesn't it kind of feel a bit detached? I mean, what's the reason for this transition? And there are really two reasons, as I was studying over this text, there are two reasons that interpreters and commentators suggest. And I'll give you both, and I'll tell you what I believe he's actually, or what I believe is actually happening here. I think both are plausible, but I'll tell you what I believe is actually the intention of this woman for shifting the conversation. And the first theory is that this woman abruptly changes the subject because she's embarrassed by her sin and no longer wants to continue having this man expose her life. See, she's guarded at this point. She wants to stiff arm the conversation. It's like, man, let's talk about something else, anything else. You see, one commentator says it this way, quote, the disclosure of his knowledge shocked her and put her on the defensive Like many others whose moral position is challenged, she took refuge in arguing impersonally about religion. Man, don't we see this all the time? Isn't this what we do, right? When we're confronted with our sin by a brother or sister, even when they come to us gently to lovingly draw us to repentance, and they want to have this conversation, what do we do? We suddenly change the subject. We want to talk about something else anything but us. Please get the spotlight off of me and my sin. Or I see this all the time with believers when they engage with unbelievers in the public square, Facebook and all these other social medias, right? And when you just lovingly try to tell someone, hey, what the way that you're living your life, the, the word of God, God himself, he says that that's hey. And then what do they do? They suddenly just want to tell you all the things they don't like about Christianity. Like, please get the spotlight off of me. Please don't expose my sin. Let's talk about anything else. But this is what we all do. I don't like having my sin called out. I know that's what I need. I know it's necessary. I don't like it. Anybody in here like it? Don't you dare put your hand up. (laughs) No one likes that. See, apart from the quickening and the conviction of the Holy Spirit, this is all of us. We don't want to bear the weight of our sin. We don't want to carry that burden. We're so quick to change the subject. So I believe that's plausible. I believe that could be why this woman changes the subject. But what I lean to, what, I, what I'll take a stance on is this second theory for why this woman changes 
or appears to change the subject here. I believe this encounter with Jesus has begun transforming this woman's heart. That Jesus is beginning to work on her in such a way that she has real questions. See, she had just acknowledged Jesus as a prophet, so she feels like, okay, maybe this dude has the answers to the questions that I've always wanted to ask. Right? Something different is happening for this woman, and she's face-to-face with this man who she feels is inspired. And so she says, okay, well, if this dude knows all this, let me ask him this question about worship. I believe this woman truly wanted to know where she should go now to meet with God. Things are starting to happen in her heart. The Holy Spirit is starting to work on this woman in this conversation. Where should I go now if what you're saying is true? And it is. And I'm starting to feel a certain way. Things are starting to happen for me. Where should I go to meet with God? I believe that's what's happening here. Now, again, both are very reasonable, but I believe this is the reason that she changes the conversation. She now wants to know, where should I go to meet with God? And she says to Jesus, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. You see, this statement is a major point of contention between the Jews and Samaritans. Again, if you were here last week, we kind of talked about the complicated history between these two groups. See, during Jesus' time, there was certainly great tension between them, and one of the many points of debate was, where do we worship God? Where do we go to meet with him? They both found it necessary. They both knew it was something that they should do, both Jews and Samaritans. But for the Samaritans, they felt like they should worship on Mount Gerizim. And why is that? Because they only had the Pentateuch. I don't know if we talked about this last week, but for the Samaritans, they only held to the first five books of the Bible as part of the canon. So they had a limited uh, collection of the scriptures. They only had a limited canon. So for them, they would read the encounter with Abraham where God calls him to a foreign land. And then when he goes, he builds a, uh, a shrine to the Lord, right? in this place called Shechem, which was right there overlooked by Mount Gerizim. So for them, they felt like that's where we should worship, right? For the Jews, it was different, though, because they had the entire canon of the Old Testament. They knew that the place that they were to worship God would be in Jerusalem, right? So again, these two groups have conflicting views. There's some tension there about where to worship the Lord, But Jesus, again, raises the stakes here. Look at verse 21. He replies to the woman and says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. I'm sure this woman is floored by this statement. Like, what do you mean it it doesn't matter? What do you mean I'm not going to worship on this mountain? What do you mean the Jews won't worship in Jerusalem? How is this possible This is sacred ground. What could replace that? What could do away with our tradition? And the answer is only something infinitely greater that could surpass these places of worship. And that very thing is standing before her at that well. His name is Jesus. And he says this time is coming where these places will be obsolete. They'll be irrelevant See, what Jesus is alluding to here, he says this time is coming, this hour is coming. He's really pointing to the hour of his exaltation and his glorification, the hour of his death, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. 
See, under the old covenant, worshipers were bound to these physical locations, these sacred places of worship. That's how they met with God. But Jesus is saying a time is coming where it won't matter where you worship, but who you worship. Brothers and sisters, this is a great reminder to us that coming before God appropriately has nothing to do with where you are physically, but it has everything to do with the way that we offer praise, and the way that we offer praise and worship is to Christ Jesus the Son. This is directing our attention to something we must consistently focus on. Christ the Son has come to reveal God to man. So it didn't matter about mountains. It didn't matter about the temple. Jesus is the temple now. He's how we meet with God. Remember that the veil is torn. We now have this full access to God, right, through Christ Jesus. It doesn't matter what mountain you're on. It doesn't matter what city you're in. You can meet with God right where you are, through Jesus Christ. See, Jesus introduces that idea here, and he'll really expand on it in verses 23 and 24, and we'll get back to that in just a moment. But let's look at verse 22. Jesus says to this woman something interesting. He says, you worship what you do not know, but we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. That's an interesting statement. What is Jesus saying here? Does Jesus mean that the Samaritans are worshiping some unknown God? Is that what he's telling this woman, that she doesn't really know God? See, commentators are all over the place here as well and when it comes to this text, but I'll tell you again what I believe that Jesus is saying here. See, if you recall, I mentioned that the Samaritans only had a limited collection of the Scriptures. They only held to the first five books of the Bible for their canon. So they had a limited knowledge of God through his written revelation. Right? They only had a limited understanding of who God was and how he'd worked through history. So when Jesus says, you worship what you do not know, he's right, considering they lack the full revelation of God contained in the Old Testament. See, on the other hand, the Jews had the whole of the Old Testament. They had all of God's written word fully given to them. In fact, Jesus says here that salvation is from the Jews. Well, what does that mean? What is he saying here? I think commentator D.A. Carson says it very well this way. He says, quote, the Jews stand within the stream of God's saving revelation. So also can it be said that they are the vehicle of that revelation, the historical matrix, matrix out of which that revelation emerges, end quote. And that may be very wordy for you. It's like, brother, dumb that down for me. Let's use some simpler language. So let me explain it to you this way. There are really two ways in which salvation comes from the Jews. First, it's the revelation of God through his word, right? God gave the scriptures to the Jews. It was their responsibility to contain the oracles, to preserve them, right? God gives his word to the Jewish nature, right? The Jews were given the scriptures first, and we see that in verses like Romans chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Romans chapter 9, verses 3 and 5, right? Those are just a couple. Write those down, and you can go to them later. But we understand it's of the Jews or from the Jews because God first reveals himself and gives his word to the nation of Israel. Second of all, the source of salvation belongs to the Jews because Jesus, the Messiah, is a Jew himself. 
right? If you remember John chapter 1, it says that Jesus came to his own, right? He came to the nation of Israel, to the Jewish people, his own people. So Jesus is also a Jew. So the source of salvation, even it came to the Jews, it comes through the Jews. However, I think it's important for us to understand something. Jesus is not saying that salvation is exclusive to the Jewish people. That's another great place for you to say amen, because if you're in here and you're not Jewish, that's good news, right? Okay, if you're in here and you are not Jewish, that is great news. The Bible clearly speaks of God's plan of salvation being available to the Gentiles, to all people, all nations. Again, verses like Romans 1.16, Acts 28.28, 28. Revelation 7.9, just a few verses for you to go to later that you can read about that. So Jesus is explaining to this woman in, in shorter, a shorter version is that she just doesn't have a complete comprehension of who God is and how to worship him. If you remember back in verse 21, Jesus told her that the hour was coming. Well, here in verse 23, he advances on this statement. He says the hour is coming, and guess what? It is now here. He says the time is actually here. And while Jesus, again, is looking forward to his glorification through his death and resurrection, he tells this Samaritan woman that this new era of worship has already come. This new period for worship is being realized in the person and ministry of Jesus Christ. What does he tell this woman? He gives her an important reality here. He says God is seeking people to worship him in spirit and in truth. Well, what does that mean? What in the world does it mean to worship God in spirit and in truth? So let's talk about that briefly here. So spirit does not refer to the Holy Spirit here. I think it's important for us to make that distinction. Although it is necessary to have the work of the Holy Spirit for us to worship God rightly. When Jesus says spirit and truth, spirit is not referring to the Holy Spirit we can be uh, confident in that because when you see spirit written in the Bible, it's usually capitalized. Here it is not. It is not capitalized, so it is not referring to the Holy Spirit, right? So what does this mean? What spirit is Jesus talking about? See, spirit is referring to this internal reality. It's addressing the posture and disposition of our hearts when we worship the Lord, I think John MacArthur is helpful here when he says, spirit does not refer to the Holy Spirit, but the human spirit. Worship must be internal, not external conformity to ceremonies and rituals. You see, for this woman, that's all she knew. She knew that for me to worship God rightly, I have to be on this mountain. It's something external that I must do. And the Jews even had the same hang up, especially the Pharisees and those who were under the weight of legalism. Both the Jews and Samaritans had uh, appropriate worship, but it was bound to locations and customs and traditions. And here Jesus introduces a new ideology to this woman. He says, just as true worship is linked to the person of Christ, here we find that it's not about where you worship, but it's more about how you worship God. And he says, it must be done in spirit and truth. And it's not about where. It's about who and it's about how. Now, listen, I'm not suggesting that you just go to any church you desire. 
I'm not telling you to just go to whatever church is in your neighborhood and just worship there. You definitely want to do the research and make sure you end up at a church that preaches the Bible, that's faithful to the gospel, that loves Jesus Christ. Right? However, it's, it's, again, it's not about your location. God is not bound by geographical realities. Where you're located doesn't really matter. Jesus says we must worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus says God is spirit, and those who worship him must do so in spirit and truth. And what does that mean, God is spirit? Why does Jesus throw that in there? Well, God being spirit is just one of the fundamental ways of referring to his nature. It means God is not a man. He's not, uh, he isn't man-made. He isn't wrapped in flesh until the incarnation. Since God is spirit, and in the same way, we must worship him in spirit. So what does this mean? This means so to worship God in spirit means that first there must be some internal transformation. Our hearts must be changed to worship God the appropriate way. See, just as God is spirit and he's invisible, there must be an internal change in us that's invisible but plays out externally as well. That's what it means to worship him in spirit. See, this is a twofold process because Jesus says worship in spirit, but he also says worship in truth. And so what does that mean? We understand that spirit is the human spirit and worshiping God with the appropriate heart posture. What does it mean to worship in truth? What does that entail? What does that mean? It means, first of all, that we must confess the truth of our sinful depravity. We must confess our desperate need for Jesus Christ. But this also means that we must worship according to the Lord's truth found within the pages of Scripture. We must worship according to what God says is true. Our worship must be consistent with what the Scriptures teach us. Here's a great place for us to pause, right? When we talk about worshiping according to what the Scriptures tell us is true, man, this appears to be a problem in our day and time, doesn't it? I mean, there are a lot of people gathered together claiming the name of Christ, but the worship they're putting forth doesn't align with what the Word of God says. Man, just to be quite frank with you, there's a lot of stuff that's just foolishness, unbiblical foolishness that's being passed off as worship these days. It's not honoring to God. It's not honoring to the Lord. It's ill-advised. It's worldly nonsense. Listen, again, when we worship the creator, we ought to come before him with the appropriate posture. A lot of times in our churches, we ask the wrong questions. Say, man, what do I like in worship? What do I want? Or even as pastors and leaders within the church, we say, man, what does the congregation want? What would they like for worship? Those are the wrong questions. What we should be asking is, what does God demand? What does he require? How should we worship the Lord? Let's turn to the pages of Scripture. What does he tell us that he wants when we come before him to offer praise and worship? That's the right question to ask. It's not about what I desire. It's not about what you desire. What does God want? What does God want? Brothers and sisters, the way that we worship the Lord, this isn't a small or insignificant thing. There may be people who tell you otherwise, but how we come before the Lord and offer worship absolutely matters. Aaron's sons found out the hard way. 
if you recall that story. Listen, at the core of all of this, fundamentally, what we must realize and understand is that for us, our worship must be Christ-centered. This is the only appropriate way to come to the Lord, and that's through Christ Jesus. So Jesus says that the Lord is seeking people to worship him in spirit and in truth. That's the right way to worship God. Those who desire to worship him must exalt his son in spirit and in truth. Finally, as we prepare to close our time, point number three is that Jesus is the promised Messiah. If we look at verses 25 and 26, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This has been quite a conversation that Jesus has had with this woman. In fact, we'll see next week that this was a life-changing conversation for this woman. At this point, we don't really know how much this woman understands. We know that this woman is hopeful that when the Messiah comes, he'll explain all things to her. Perhaps in her confusion, she anticipated him coming and bringing clarity to these questions about religion and worship and theology. We don't know for sure how far she's progressed at this point, but what we do know is that even in her ignorance, she has hope. Even without the full canon of scriptures, the Samaritans understood that God had made a promise of deliverance to send this deliverer, one to restore all things. So this woman who's had this sordid past, who made a mess of her life and is buried under the shame of her sin and her guilt, she was clinging to this promise. She believed that this Messiah would come and bring the light of salvation And here in this conversation is where it reaches this climactic point because Jesus responds to her and says, I'm him. The Messiah that you're waiting for, that's me. Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. Actually, in the original text, the word he isn't even there. So Jesus really says, I who speak to you am. And everyone who had a Bible at that time would have understood exactly what Jesus was saying. I am. The same way God identifies himself in Exodus 2 and 6 when he gives his name to Moses, he says, I am. That's what Jesus is saying here. And all of the readers of the Old Testament, when they read John's gospel, they would have knew exactly what he was saying when he writes these words. Jesus says to this woman, I am. Am he, this promised Savior that you've waited your entire life to see. I stand before you here today. This stranger, this Jewish man who moments earlier had asked her for a drink and addressed her sin and has this conversation about worship. He is the long-awaited Messiah. This woman didn't even realize it, not at first anyway. She's in the presence of the one who gives Life. He is the source of this living water, the one that knows all of her sins and failures. Jesus is the Savior, the one that bridges the gap between God and man. See, what her soul sought out in all of these relationships could only be found in the one that stood before. Though she may not have understood this at the moment, this thirsty Jewish traveler was actually the one to fulfill her greatest need. As we close our time here together, 
we see that Jesus makes plain to her who he is, which is really interesting to consider because he never even did that with his uh, Jewish counterparts, if you will. In fact, there's portions of the text where Jesus tells his disciples, look, don't tell anybody that I'm the Christ. Don't tell anybody that I'm the Savior. But he reveals himself point blank, just directly to this sinful, broken, fractured woman. He calls her to himself. He's wooing her to himself. And as we'll see next week, her response is incredible. She is radically transformed from her encounter with Christ. See, as we end our time together this morning, I simply want to illuminate the truth about Jesus. See, my hope and prayer is that everyone in this room would clearly see and know that salvation is freely available, but it's only available through him. Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, the Messiah. He's already come, right? You need to understand that the Savior, the long-awaited Savior, he's already come. And guess what? He's coming back again to receive those who worship him in spirit and in truth. Right? Jesus Christ, the Savior, Acts 4.12 tells us there is salvation in no other name. There is no other way a man or woman can be saved apart from Christ Jesus. Salvation comes to those who turn from their sins and fully embrace Jesus Christ as the Savior. So as he engaged in this conversation with this woman about her sin, drawing her to himself, calling her to lay it aside, we must lay down our sin and rebellion as well. See, to worship Jesus truly in this spirit and truth means we must, we must come before him bare, empty-handed, exposed, simply flinging ourselves on the mercies of Christ. See, as a result of his love and his faithfulness and his saving grace, listen, brothers and sisters, if you're a believer in this room, this is our motivation to come before the Lord appropriately. And that's not just on Sunday mornings. Right? You can worship Jesus in your home, in your car, in your cubicle at work. But our motivation to come before him appropriately is that he saved us, that he's rescued each of us. He didn't leave us to die in our sins. Just as he comes to this woman and he offers her living water, the offer's been extended to all of us. It's freely available to whosoever will let him come. But if you're already a believer in Jesus Christ, this is the reason to rejoice. This is the reason to worship him continuously, fully, and appropriately. Because he's the great and glorious Savior. Listen, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, You've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe you're like this Samaritan woman and maybe this morning you're being confronted with your sin as we've had this opportunity to talk. Maybe you're saying to yourself, I understand where I've sinned. I understand the things in my life that God is telling me I need to put down. Maybe you're excited about the living water that Jesus offers. Maybe you you feel that your soul is really thirsting for it for the first time this morning. Maybe God's drawing you in and stirring your heart, heart unlike before. You're not sure what to do with that. Maybe you're here this morning, you're like, I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what to do here. 
I ask you to find me, find Pastor Tyler, one of our members, somebody. Don't leave this place the same way you came in. If you're an unbeliever in this room this morning, just as Jesus freely invites this woman into relationship with him, he's inviting you into relationship with him this this morning as well. There's an opportunity for you to be saved, for your sin, for that burden of your sin to be lifted. Only Christ can do it. Only Christ can do it. Just want to invite you this morning, whoever you are, whatever your situation, is to look to Jesus. Look to him and live, to trust him, for he is a worthy and capable Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to fellowship together. Lord, we thank you for giving us Jesus, Lord, who bears the weight of our sins, who is this great and promised Messiah. Through him, we have freedom, we have forgiveness, we can live eternally. Lord, I pray for all of those here this morning that may not know Jesus. Lord, I pray that they wouldn't just leave and go back home and continue to live as they've always have. God, but I pray that you would do the work of changing their hearts right now. That there would be real surrender to Christ. That they would repent, turn to him, and trust in him for salvation. That they would find this great freedom and forgiveness unlike ever before. God, only you can do that work. So I ask that you would do that this morning. Lord, for those of us who are part of the body of believers, for those of us who are already in Christ, help us to be reminded of the great glory that is Jesus Christ, to find joy in worshiping him, to come before him in spirit and in truth, with our hearts in the right position, and to worship you according to what your word tells us. That is that we must worship the Son in order to worship the Father. So help us to do that in all things, not just here on Sunday mornings, not just when we gather in churches or community groups. God, that we would worship you fully and completely wherever we are in all things and that you would be glorified in it. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.